I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Thomas O'Neill White. I'm Angelie Preston. We need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is What's Next. A dedicated hour to have important conversations about the issues facing the marginalized and underrepresented communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truth. What's Next continues our mission to discuss race, equity, and the common concerns of Buffalo's East Side and beyond. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. And on What's Next today, we're going to talk with Dr. Keith Burrich. Professor Emeritus at Canisius University. I think I, last time we were, I may have kept mentioning Canisius College. It was still a college then, yes. <laughs> it was still a college back then. Uh, you're, when you were here the last time, uh, Dr. Birch, we talked about uh, another book of yours. This particular book, though, is the Thomas Indian School and the Irredeemable Children of New York. And we put irredeemable in quotation marks. The Thomas Indian School, uh, one of those still maybe well-kept secrets of Western New York to a certain extent, unfortunately. Let's give uh, an outline of the Thomas Indian School. I'll let you do the do the work on that. Well, um, yeah, you're right. It's a well-kept secret. Uh, my, my work on Indian schools began actually out in uh, South Dakota in Rosebud, one of my trips, many trips out to the West. A good friend of mine, Don Moccasin, who's on the cover of my other book, uh, as you recall, uh, his father was an Episcopal priest, and his grandfather and great-grandfather, and uh, they ran a school on Rosebud called the, the Bishop Hare School. And I started looking into it, and I did some research on it at Augustine College in Sioux Falls and uh, so on. And I came back here, and I was lecturing or something. I can't remember the exact details, but one of my Indian friends said, well, why don't you do something with the Thomas Indian School? I said, what are you talking about? And he said, right here on the Seneca Reservation, Cattaraugus Reservation, was the Thomas Indian School. I said, well, I never heard of it. And I asked other people, and in fact, Indians didn't even know. Some of my Indian friends didn't even know about it. It was one of the best-kept secrets, wow. even though it was a pretty substantial institution. I think at the end, uh, it ended, it closed finally in 1957. Uh, it had over 300 acres of land, barns, silos, uh, out, out uh, buildings and so on. And um, so I decided to look into it. And it just so happened at that time, I there was a reunion of Thomas Indian School students on the Seneca Reservation, Cattaraugus Reservation in Irving. And so I went to it, and they had a presentation at the um, library there. And uh, one of the women was a Tuscarora from Canada, actually, uh, but she was here in America. Her mother died. She was whisked away from her mother's gravesite, her and her brothers, and, and taken over to uh, what is now Gateway Longview on Main Street, the Henry D. Knox uh, Home for Children, and uh, then shifted to the Thomas Indian School. And she started talking about it, and she said, well, you know, when I got out, uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to uh, live a life outside of an institution. I got married. I had kids. I raised them like I was raised at, at the Thomas Indian School. And he, she said, and I'll never forget this. 
said, I didn't know how to love. Hmm. Wasn't a dry eye in the house, including mine. Um, and that was the story that I've heard over and over again about children uh, who went to boarding schools, whether it's Thomas Indian School or, or others around the country. Uh, they didn't know how to raise families. They didn't know how to hug. They didn't know how to love. Um, and the Thomas Indian School didn't start out as a, as a school. Uh, its original name was the Thomas Asylum for Orphans and Destitute Indian Children, uh, the Asylum for Destitute Orphan and Destitute Indian Children. It started in 1855, but it really began before that, uh, right here in downtown Buffalo. You know, and that, that, that brings up an interesting part of this story, that I, and I think it might be a, a, ch a chance to jump into this right now. I, I see this story in a lot of different ways. There's so much to it. One part is the results, what life was like for those children who came out of that right. that institution, and how, as you already mentioned, how they didn't know a way to live other than through the institution. But another part of this that you bring up in your book as well is this school, this uh, uh, asylum, as it was originally taught, came out of, also reflected, though, and came out of the really difficult conditions that were on the reservations of New York. And most of that came right after a lot of the treaties had been settled, a lot of displacement had gone on. What was life like on the reservations of well, New York? I, I think it wasn't just the reservations of New York. I mean, well, you but, put but to this, to this the, point, yeah. Yeah, you got to put things in, and uh, this is an important consideration. Uh, you had to put things in in a larger perspective. In the 19th century, Indians, uh, by the end of the, the revolution, and especially into the 19th century, Indians were already being removed. I mean, we always think about the Trail of Tears right. and all that, but it had happened. And it was happening of, right here in Western yeah, New York. Yeah, and in Western New York. And they were put on reservations or whatever, uh, removed most of them, uh, most of the Indians east of the Mississippi were removed west of the Mississippi by the 1830s and 1840s. And uh, reservation life was horrible. Uh, it, they they um, were deprived of a way of living, their way of life, uh, deprived of their land and their way of life, um, and uh, weren't able in many cases to feed themselves and and find um, and, and continue the way that they had always lived. The result was that uh, on all reservations, uh, populations began to drop. I mean, we know that by the end of the 19th century, uh, Indians, the number of Indians in, in the United States dropped to less than a quarter of a million mm -hmm. from something like 12 million before around 1500. And the result, and the, one of the causes caught was that was, of course, warfare. And people have always blamed it on diseases, you know, smallpox, although actually we were in, uh, vaccinating Indians in, against smallpox in the 19th century. Mm. Most people don't know that. Um, but it was a lot of diseases, but it was also uh, starvation, exposure, um, and uh, really more than anything else, the the way their their lives uh, had to change and adjust to the reservations. And you, and I, I wrote this down, so maybe it's my term, but it, this is what I got out of it. Social disorganization. Their lives, the way the Indians of New York State, and uh, everywhere, but let, yeah. we'll, again, we'll just focus on New York State for, for the matter of this particular conversation. 
were totally turned around. They, what had been a way of life for centuries was all of a sudden turned around and left. And you bring it up in the book, and I think it's a, a worthwhile point. It to, and I think if we all imagined what our lives would be like if all of a sudden they were turned upside down and we were moved, right. what our families would be like. Right. Our families were disrupted. Uh, alcohol was a big problem uh, and, and, and had been a problem. Uh, there was violence on the on the uh, reservations, and and like I said, disease, starvation, uh, the the total disruption of their way of life. Uh, you're right, social disorganization. I hadn't thought about that for a while, uh, <laughs> and um, and and so they really couldn't do what the Seneca, how the Seneca, for example, described sovereignty. We carry our own water. They were no longer able to carry their own water, mm. and. Um, of course, one of the big problems was that there were all these hostile, land-hungry settlers coming into this region, especially after the Erie Canal opened up in 1825. Uh, and eventually, of course, they were, uh, and, and their biggest reservation was right here in downtown Buffalo, 80,000 acres along the creek. And um, they finally were able to get rid of them in 1842. The government was ready to get rid of them in 1842. And uh, they went up to uh, Cattaraugus and Allegheny reservations that, that they, where they live now. Um, in the process, uh, the families, as I said, began to, dis to, to dissolve, to fall apart. One of the problems was, of course, the rate of uh, death. The death rates were, were terrible. Seneca population fell in the 19th century. Okay. Mm. The, I have a statistic that's alarming. In eight, 1900 or 1890, I'm not really sure which one it is, but um, the life expectancy in the United States was 50. For Seneca, it was 30. Wow. Um, and that was true for other reservations as well. That left a lot of orphans and destitute Indian children. And the people who started the Thomas Indian School, Laura and Asher Wright, were two Presbyterian uh, missionaries. Well, he had gone to Dartmouth and came out to minister to the Indians. And they would do it until they died uh, in 1875 and 1880. They were really wonderful in many respects. Um, they took in uh, orphans. They took in uh, sick children uh, here at a mission house in, in Buffalo. When the Seneca were removed to Cattaraugus in 1842, uh, they went with them, and uh, they continued to minister to them there in a mission house. Uh, but then in 1855, in 1850s, really, uh, an epidemic hit hmm. and produced more orphan and, and destitute Indian children. So in 1855, they got a charter with the help of a guy named William Letchworth. Okay. Um, and uh, $100, a princely sum of $100 <laughs> from Philip Thomas, who happened to be the president, a Quaker, by the way, uh, a president of the B&O Railroad. Oh, okay. And uh, he gave them $100, and that's where the name Thomas comes from, the Thomas Indian School. But it was it started out as the Thomas Asylum for Orphaned and Destitute Indian Children. And they started with 10, and that wasn't enough. Uh, soon they, they, they were up. They're going to be, in the, by the 1870s, over 80. Uh, they've had a new building. The, uh, the stories about the building was in the Buffalo News and the Courier at that point. And if I if I recall in your book, yeah. 
5,000 people came to the Cornerstone oh, yes, ceremony. Oh, yes, and they gave money. They gave money to support the school. And one of the visitors was Susan B. Anthony. Wow. Uh, they, this was a famous uh, occasion. And uh, they lasted for quite a while on that money and on other, other, other uh, gifts uh, over time. But the, 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 the increasing number of students calling on them uh, and the philanthropy kind of petered out after the Civil War. Uh, it, 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 uh, um, people weren't quite as generous, I guess, or right. they had other concerns or whatever. But um, they finally, in 1875, had a turn to the state. Uh, Asher Wright, the, the uh, superintendent or headmaster or the missionary that had started the school, uh, went to Albany, got a charter. Um, I mean, uh, got, got the state, I'm sorry, the State Board of Charities to take it over. And um, for the first few years, it really didn't matter. But then things changed drastically. Um, you, you got into it, and it's worth now the distinction after New York State starts taking takes this over. Again, I, and it's interesting also to put that juxtaposition about how excited it seemed, how you know, the society in general was thrilled to have this opportunity to help these right. these young children out, but that changes as the institution gets moves on. And it, there's a big distinction, and you make this frequently in your book, that the children went from being children, students, to really being classified as inmates. Yeah. Uh, and immediately uh, after Asher Wright, uh, that was the last act that he had as as uh, the headmaster or superintendent of the school, uh, was to g- hand it over to the state. Uh, he died right shortly thereafter. Right. Uh, the the uh, one of the the people who had worked there, the men who had worked there, took over the job, and it really didn't change much for a few years. But then. Uh, a new headmaster or superintendent came in, a guy named uh, von Valkenberg, came from the School for the Blind, um, because the Board of Charities really had a number of asylums. Asylum was a popular word at that time. Mm. It doesn't have the sinister word, that, uh, word meaning that it has today. So there there were asylums for epileptics, for lunatics, for idiots. I mean, they had yeah, all and These are of, real <laughs> real terms. We're yeah, not just yeah, these are real, their terms, right. not mine. Right, and, right, right. and defective children. I don't know what the heck that meant, but right. uh, it was they, they had all kinds of asylums. When he took over, he began to change things. Okay. And then is that's when they became not school children, not, not orphans or destitute Indian children. They became inmates or wards of the state. Huge distinction. Yeah. And the state now had custody over them. And as I said, immediately things didn't change, but gradually they did. And one of the big changes, in some ways, the state did some good things, uh, uh, changed the dorms from fire traps to uh, brick buildings, and uh, they started a nursery, a kindergarten, uh, and and actually upgraded the curriculum. But one of the things they did was to have a contract for the par- the parents or guardians that committed the children, because once they put them in, they weren't going to get them out. Mm. Uh, the first contract was was restrictive. Uh, the people had to uh, uh, the parents or guardians or whomever committed them had to notify the school in writing 30 days in advance. Well, 
Many of the Indians didn't speak English, didn't write. Didn't, uh, As a matter of fact, I think you mentioned most of them marked X. Uh, yeah, they had they to sign X's when they put them in there. So they weren't able to write, uh, put a request in writing. Uh, but they were days. surrendering all their rights yeah. to their children. And eventually they, 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 re, they increased the restrictions so that not only could they not get them out very easily, but they couldn't encourage them. Mm. If they encouraged them, they were subject to punishment. The parents were, or guardians, or whomever it was that did that. And they now became inmates, and as I said, wards of the state. And the school eventually became uh, more and more uh, prison like. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I heard from the people uh, that I interviewed, uh, even much later, of course, these people would be there in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Um, the constant surveillance that they were under. Every bit of their life was regulated, first by a whistle that told them where to go. Mm. Uh, and and uh, there were always people looking after them, uh, looking, making sure that they were doing their chores, making sure that they were studying, making sure that they weren't misbehaving. There was a line drawn down the middle of the campus as it grew, and that was uh, designed to keep the sexes apart, the genders apart. And that's what the term crossed the line. Ah. It didn't cross the line. Uh, okay. If you did, you were going to be punished. And the punishments could be severe. Some of them could be, yeah. yeah. But I think most of them were more uh, just uh, assigning them more disagreeable or onerous chores. Right. Uh, but yeah, sometimes, the, especially the boys. Right. Uh, the, the women told me that the boys had it worse than, than the girls. Uh, they could be uh, beaten for having stepped out of line. Uh, of course, the worst thing was is to run away. And, and Which happened frequently. Yes, it did. And, and um, uh, so they, they, were, they were punished. Uh, and they were, they were watched constantly, as I said. And you have to start to think about this what it would be like. Some of these children, because they had a nursery now, and they had a kindergarten, these kids were coming in awfully young. Mm. You have to stop and think about what it would be like with your children or anybody's children, handing them over to perfect strangers who didn't speak their language, who didn't understand them, uh, who had total control over every aspect of their lives. They were housed in dormitories, 26 to a bunk room. Uh, where, and watched over by matrons. And, and you, you, now you, you understand why when they get out, they don't know how the heck to raise kids. They don't right. know how to live a, a normal life without somebody telling them what to do every minute of the day. Uh, it, it was a, 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 I, I, the trauma that they must have, those children must have gone through is hard to imagine. Right. Taken away from their parents. Taken or, away from their parents or tribes or communities or whatever, right, and placed in the care of total strangers who had total control over their lives. And they would be there perhaps maybe for another decade, maybe even more, longer in some yeah, cases. Yeah, they, uh, and that was one of the things that happened also. Uh, in 1904, compulsory education came into play. So now they had to stay until they were 16. Mm -hmm. And many of them did. Uh, but many of them also, when they got to be 16 or even 18 and graduated from high school, because they, they could graduate from high school, um, didn't know what to do. Yeah. They had no place to go, no homes to return to. 
Um, I, I, there are stories that I, I tell in the book and others that I heard. When they did go home, everything had changed. Um, they weren't always notified when their parents died. Uh, so they would go home and their, their parents weren't there. And their parents were discouraged from ever, uh, ever um, seeing them. Uh, meeting with them, coming to see them, visit them is what the word that I'm trying to get, right. visit them. Uh, and then there were various reasons. Uh, alcohol was always the big reason or there were diseases or whatever. Uh, but parents were, were discouraged from coming to visit their kids. And in many cases, as the, as the institution grew, you're now taking Indians not just from Seneca nations, but from the Tuscarora up by Niagara Falls, the Onondaga out in Syracuse, the Mohawks up near Montreal, uh, even uh, non-Iroquois, non-Haudenosaunee Indians of Shinnecock from out on the end of Long Island ended up there, and some from Canada. Uh, so these they, they were a, far, a long way away from home, and going home was not going to be easy. And when they got there, it had all changed, and their parents were gone, their siblings were gone. And that was another thing. They were also separated from their siblings at the school by age and by gender. One guy told me, one Seneca told me, when he left, the, all of his family had gone to Thomas Indian School. They were all different ages, so they all left at different times and went their different ways. When they finally got out and got back together, the only thing they had in common was alcohol. Hmm. And that was a scourge of the uh, many of the people who got out of the, the Thomas Indian School and, and other boarding schools as well. Thanks for joining us today. This is What's Next on WBFO. More to come right after this. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using whatsnext at wbfo.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. We're talking with uh, Dr. Keith Birch this morning on What's Next, the author of The Thomas Indian School and the Irredeemable Children of New York. You were talking about how parents were discouraged from seeing their children at the Thomas School. Also, if I'm not mistaken, and maybe expand on this, it also became a little bit of a philosophy from above that they, the people who were running the school, did not want the influence oh. of, of the Indian tribes coming into the school. That's right. The whole idea, you know, the, 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 the idea of Indian education begins in the 17th century, and it, it goes all the way into the 20th century. And the whole idea was to acculturate and assimilate Indian children. Um, what that meant initially was teach them English, teach them uh, Christianity, Christianize them, and teach them how to farm uh, women were supposed to do housewifery, as it was called. Mm. Also, I, I always call it the, the gospel of soap because uh, <laughs> right, right. Indians were dirty and slovenly and we got to scrub them. And, and maybe if we scrub them, we'll, we'll scrub them white. Uh, and, and just on a, as a side, I do believe you had an anecdote from a, a woman who was there at Thomas who 
literally try to right. to scrub right. her skin color off. Yeah, and that was one of the 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 the, uh, the effects of it. Uh, that they began to think of themselves as different, as inferior, or something wrong with them. Why am I here? Well, because I'm an Indian. Well, if I'm an Indian and I'm here, there must be something wrong with me. And that that was something that that happened uh, to them. To get back to the parents, because this is a story that I, I came after I wrote the book, and I was at a reunion. There, there's one every September, and I just just was there not too long ago. And this woman came up to me and she said, you know, she actually disagreed with some of the things I said in the book. Okay. She said she had a good time there, so at least a, uh, it wasn't as bad as most people think it was. At any rate, she said, but one thing I want to th uh, thank you for is pointing out that the school discouraged my parents from, or parents from coming to see their children. I always wondered why, now this woman's in her 70s or 80s by this time. I always wondered why my mother never came to visit me. I was dumbfounded. Mm -hmm. I couldn't speak. Here was a woman in her 70s and 80s who was still haunted by the fact that her parents never came to visit her. And when you think about the trauma that those kids had when they were t taken away from their parents, taken away from their siblings, put in a strange environment, housed with 26 strange kids in, the, in a bunk room, watched over or controlled constantly, how that trauma affected them, not just when they were young or while they were at the school, but would continue to haunt them for the rest of their lives. That's the story of the Thomas Indian School in, in, a, in a capsule. And she, I, I was shocked. Um, uh, it's not that I hadn't thought about it, but I never had it put that way for me. And I, I'll never forget that story. As I've said to you and I say in the book, um, I shed a lot of tears over this. Sure. I've heard a lot of horrible stories. Uh, that was just one of them. What were the days like at the Thomas School? Uh, you know, it was standard boarding school fair. That actually started way back when, in the 18th century. Uh, at, uh, I know that the Moore's Boarding School, which was the precursor of Dartmouth, uh, was an Indian school first, and they they did they what they did there. The Thomas Indian School did, and all other boarding schools, half a day of work, every day. Um, that was called the half day system. Uh, the men did farming because the whole idea was to teach them how to farm like white people, uh, because Indians used hoe agriculture and women did did most of the work, uh, of the agricultural work at any rate, not the other work, um, but teach the men how to farm. Uh, use, as they would say, the white man's plow, uh, rather than using hoe to, hose to uh, uh, cultivate the land. Um, and there would be, of course, school, all administered with a heavy dose of religion, because almost every, every school, whether it was a federal school, a state school, or a denominational school, believed that you had to Christianize the, the Indians. Um, not necessarily turn them into Catholics. That was still a, <laughs> that, that was a taboo uh, um, until later in the 19th century. But <laughs> you wanted to Christianize them. And uh, that was what, what they did. And, of course, they had chores of one kind or another. I know at Thomas, uh, it snows. Just go out and clear the snow. Uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. Harvest the crops. Feed the 
the cows, the chickens, the pigs, and all the kinds of things that agricultural uh, that, that farmers had to do, and that's what you were training them to do. Women, for their part, had to do very similar, uh, had a very similar schedule. Up early, by the way, they were always told when to wake up and what when to change chores by a whistle. Uh, mm-hmm. So they were never allowed to just wander around and go from chore to chore on their own. They had to do it precisely by the whistle. Uh, the women cleaned. They did laundry. They did. They cooked. Um, they um, made clothes. All of the clothes at the Thomas Indian and other schools was made by the women at the, the schools, right down to their underwear. I, I, I was a little surprised at that, but I figured, well— where else would they get underwear? Right. Uh, they 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 make them. Uh, they made all the clothes. They did all the cleaning. They did everything. As I said, one of the reasons was that from the very beginning, when the we're coming up on Thanksgiving, the pilgrims thought that Indians were dirty and slovenly and filthy and needed to be scrubbed clean, and uh, that was what they were doing. That they said the gospel of soap, and. Um, uh, so that was what their lives were like, regulated. Uh, they did get an education. Uh, the state did uh, provide them with some uh, amenities. I mean, one of the women just at, at the uh, last re- uh, reunion I was at said, oh, boy, we had this great swimming pool. And they did. They had a high board and a low board, and she thought it was it was wonderful. Um, so the, the, the state did provide them with amenities. They did go and do things. Uh, going to the Erie County Fair was a big deal because they would show off their wares and their animals and, and so on. Um, but when they went off the reservation, and they always felt strange. They always had to wear uniforms that were made for them. Why didn't the other kids have to wear uniforms? The other kids went home. Why don't we go home? One woman told me that when she went, to, she got out, and she went to an, an, uh, a nursing school, and uh, in Oklahoma, I think, or Kansas. And she said, well, she, she and the other girls were going to go to the movies. Uh, she didn't know how to pay, because mm. everybody had everything had been taken care of for them. Uh, they didn't know how, when they got out, either how to pay rent, how to pay electricity, you know, how to do the kinds of things that children learn normally from their parents, just just watching their parents. You know. They had no such uh, instruction because everything was handled for them. Um, even I, I, this one, uh, something that surprised me, some of the boys went to the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, during, the, during the Depression. Every, everybody got money from that was sent home. Um, um, my father did. My, right. He was in the CCC. Uh, and his money was sent home to his mother to support the family. Their money went to the school, and the school wouldn't necessarily give it to them because mm. it was afraid that they would blow it on alcohol or whatever it, it might be. They, uh, every aspect of their life was regulated. So when they get out, what are they going to do? Uh, it, it was a very difficult uh, transition that many of them did not make very well. Let's talk about, about and you most certainly cite a lot of examples from uh, various sources in your book, but let's talk about what did happen 
to some of these children, what their lives were like after they left, after this this time of working half day out in the farm and shoveling snow and going to school, but being totally separated from, you know, their their families, and also as you as you mentioned, everything was decided for them as well. What was their lives? What? I mean, again, there's a lot of examples where we can go to, but let's talk about some a of those. couple a couple of things. A couple of people, especially women, told me that you know they didn't know what a normal life was like. So they get out, uh, they do, they get a job or do whatever. They get married. Uh, they don't know how to raise their families. Uh, the one that I was telling you about earlier that that introduced me to this whole thing, uh, Frida Kraft was her name. She's um, she said that when she had her on weekends, when the kids were home from school and everything, she had them scrubbing this, the house from top to bottom. That's because that's what they did. Mm. That's what you had to do. Uh, others of them told me that they, they, because they didn't know what a normal life was like, one of them, uh, Katie Wheeler is her name, she um, told me she used to drive by houses and wonder see the lights on and wonder, what was their life like? Am I leading a normal life? Am I doing with it? She was also one that told me she couldn't uh, um, hug her children until later in life and tell them that she loved them. Um, so for many of them, it was a very agonizing experience. Uh, the boys, uh, especially after World War II and after World War II, would go into the service. Um, but alcohol was a, a real problem for them. Uh, I, I, any number of stories, I won't tell you all of them, sure. but uh, uh, that that became a problem. So they didn't know how to just do the normal kinds of things that uh, everybody else learned how to do. So, you know, they, they were um, isolated from the time, in some cases, they were born, just about, because it... That nursery was almost a foundling nursery. They had infants in it all the way to the time they were 16 or 18. In some cases, some of them couldn't leave and, and continued to live there and found jobs and did other things. But they, they would stay until they were 20, 21 uh, because they had no place to go, didn't know what else to do. And the school kind of relied on them to do things and work around the school and, and that sort of thing. But uh, uh, they found it very difficult to adjust. It was a, took a long, long time if they ever did. And uh, I think that was the, the, the thing that I learned most was the long-term effects that these schools had on the children. Uh, there's something called epigenesis. I don't know if you've ever heard about it. No. It's... You know, your basic genes don't change, but because of traumatic experiences, whatever those trauma might be, you know, might be warfare, uh, you know, might be some horrendous event in your life, your, your genes are scarred, and they, they, they're not changed, but on top of them, there's a scar or, or whatever, and it affects behavior, and... Um, the theory is is that many the, the problem on reservations uh, today and and uh, in the past about alcohol abuse, for example, was the result of this trauma being carried forward on their genes, and so they would, whenever they got into situations, the, the, the alcohol it would it would trigger 
them to drink and, and you know, eventually they become dependent on, on alcohol or, or drugs. And I, I often thought about that when I was writing this book and, and talking to people that their genes were, were probably scarred and that it was going to take um, a lot of work, if possible, to uh, overcome the trauma that was grafted onto their genetic, uh, their genes. Stay with us. There's more to come. This is What's Next on WBFO. Listen to Mindful Music Saturdays at 4 p.m. and Sundays at 8 p.m. on WBFO. Attention, parents and teachers. Find free learning resources, including lesson plans and videos for all ages at pbslearningmedia.org. You're listening to What's Next, our place to discuss the important issues of our communities of Western New York and Southern Ontario. We want to hear from you. Click on the Talk to Us option in the WBFO app, and we will work to get your questions or comments on the air. Do you have a story or concern that we should be addressing? Email us using what's next at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. I'm talking with uh, Dr. Keith Birch from uh, Professor Emeritus at Canisius University. His book, The Thomas Indian School and the Irredeemable Children of New York. I think this might be an opportunity to talk about someone who, I guess, comes in, if not necessarily of a hero, but she most certainly puts things into perspective. And this is a social worker who comes along, it was a Catherine Tidd. Tidd, yes. Who, and this is now what, we're in like the 20s and 30s, I think, right? Well, no, she'd be in the fifth, 40s. In the 40s, okay. Yeah. So she she comes in and she sees, now we kind of glossed over how the, the school had maybe changed more into a, a state institution and maybe even got further and further away from its original goals, perhaps, or its original mission. But she comes in and really (laughs) takes a a good, hard look at what had been going on at the Thomas School. And the one thing that that sticks out is how she talks about how there was no individual assessment of each student there, that that because they were Indians— they were all of the same and treated the same, and that had its own tragic Oh, yeah. I mean, a one-size-fits-all is, is the way it was. It was for, for everything, uh, for health care, for education, for, for everything that went on in their lives. Yeah, I mean, everybody was treated exactly the same. Um, poorly, but... <laughs> poorly, but the same. <laughs> but the same. But everybody, back to it, everybody had different needs. Oh, and yes. Yet, they weren't yeah. being attended to. Yeah. Um, and one one guy told me that um, when he got there, he was, a, you know, maybe five or six, something like that. I, young, but not really, not an infant. Uh, he said he went in, they, they, when they brought the children in, they were automatically quarantined, okay, to check for diseases uh, because they're one of the problems on the reservation was a number of, of uh, diseases that could be spread and, you know, put them together in a dorm room and God knows what would happen to them. Uh, and he was put into it and he had a nervous breakdown. And they kept him quarantined for a whole year. Um, that was just the way they did things. They, you know, they, they, there was no real assessment, no... No psychiatrist coming in to check them. No child uh, psychiatrist or psychologist or expert coming in to check them. They were just quarantined. And 
he said that set him back and it had a, a real terrible effect on him. Uh, and and uh, he uh, blames a lot of the things that happened to him after Thomas, especially the alcohol abuse, on, on what that initial experience was, uh, that it scarred him uh, and, and changed him uh, for the worse. And that's because they did. everybody was treated exactly the same. That's what uniforms do. They break down your individuality and make you part of the group. And um, they, people even told, told me that um, in the dorms, uh, the matrons or whoever was uh, in charge of them would uh, have the children uh, sort of beat up the younger children coming in to make sure that they behaved. Mm. Um, and and fell in line and and didn't get get uppity or try to be be different or, and that was that was part of the whole system was to treat them exactly the same and and one of the reasons is and and that's one of the reasons I talk the book is called irredeemable the first missionaries that were there, and, and not just Asher and Laura Wright, but others. And there were other missionaries that had tried to establish schools there. and They came and went. Students came and went. The schools came and went. The, the Wright started the one that lasted the longest. But by the way, that's probably one of the longest-lasting boarding schools in America. Right. Uh, Carlisle lasted about 40 years, uh, and uh, th that's always considered the model. But the Thomas Indian School lasted much longer. Um, and uh, the uh, basic assumption of the missionaries going way back was that children were redeemable. They were, Christian, they were Christians, and they had Christian redemption. After the state took over, they didn't believe the Indians could be redeemable. There's a phrase that I use in the book that they, comes straight from the, the state, there was at the school like Thomas. There were other institutions, other asylums, but the one like Thomas was for they were for crippled, defective, and Indian children. They lumped Indian children together with crippled and defective uh, children, and so they didn't really think that Indian children could be redeemed. What they could be was controlled. And somehow or another, through control and punishments and, and keeping them long enough, if you kept them long enough, they would somehow become, uh, they would somehow be able to lead a normal life after they got out. But that wasn't going to be the case. The You mentioned the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania, the, the, uh, right. one of the federal uh, Indian boarding schools. They are already fading, closing. Yet Thomas, in New York State, keeps going into the 50s. Yeah, because they, they really did not believe that, as I said, the Indians could be redeemed. I mean, what, we got a problem. It's called the Indian problem. Now, there are lots of different solutions all over the country and, and, and over time for it, but one of the solution for New York was to put them into the Thomas Indian School and hope for the best. Uh, and what... What, what were they going to do? Well, we're going to, um, you know, educate them. We're going to teach them some skills. We're going to Christianize them. 
and hopefully by controlling them every every aspect of their life uh, it will teach them not to be Indians the skills that were taught and were and that's another part of the kind of hidden part of this was that women were taught domestic domestic work skills yeah men were taught how to be farmhands basically and there wasn't huge i mean they they people would find some work doing that but there was no these weren't the skills of the day that no, were being taught no. elsewhere uh, some of the other boarding schools actually did teach kids uh, kids to be um, you know mechanics because you know, by the 1920s already, right, people were right. driving cars, and, right. and uh, they you, they needed mechanics. Uh, they they were learning uh, kind of industrial skills for an industrial America. The New York was teaching them to be farmers, and they could be farm hands, but there weren't many jobs. They're never probably going to be able to own land be, and and farm because farming costs money. I mean, you got to have tractors, you got to have implements, you got to have seed. All those things are money to get started. Where are these Indians going to get, Indian kids going to get that? Uh, and, and farming already by even 1900 was beginning to fade in America. Right. Uh, you know, many of them were leaving and going to the cities. And so where are these kids going to find jobs as farmhands? You're right. And women were going to be domestic servants. That was that was what they were learning to do. Um, yeah, New York, Thomas Indian School, we haven't mentioned, is the only state-run school in America. Out of 300 and some boarding schools, most of them denominational uh, and small and kind of ephemeral, um, they were all, none of them were states-run. They were either denominational or federal schools. New York ran the only one and what they did to the Indians was based on this assumption that they were somehow defective. There was something wrong with being Indians. And that was what the students learned. Uh, there's something wrong with me. We're um, coming down to our, our final eight or nine minutes here, Dr. Burridge. Uh, the book is, is well done. I must uh, give you compliments on that. But let me throw this out at you. Why is it important for society today to understand what happened at Thomas? Well, I think um, it's not just Thomas. I mean, if, 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 if it were only Thomas, it would be sad and, and tragic, but it's all part of a, a much larger, uh, even more, even sadder and, and more tragic uh, story. Uh, that goes back 500 years, just about. Uh, the way we treated the children at the Thomas Indian School and at other boarding schools, and 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 I think we have to put Thomas in that context Certainly. of the, the boarding school movement, um, was representative, reflected the attitude that Americans had towards Indians. You know, by 1900, when the Indian population was dropping drastically, and it wouldn't rebound for, for several decades. Many Americans thought, you know what? They're going to vanish anyway. We don't really have to take care of them. The problem was is that unless you were willing to do it by the sword, 
you, in the meantime, you got to do something with them. Right. They didn't just vanish. And what happened was that that um, the, the 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 way in which we we never stopped to think about what we had done to Indians. So what the Thomas Indian School and other boarding schools, the, the stories of those schools, is that it teaches us and why it's important today what we did to Indians and what we're still doing to Indians. I mean, it, it, you know, the Thomas Indian School ended in 1957. That's not, that's a long time ago, right. but, you know, I I was still around. <laughs> I, mean, I, I was around, and, right. and, and some of them are still around. Uh, right. You know, some of my friends are, are former students. Um, so I think what the Thomas Indian School and the story of the boarding school, it teaches us the role that, that uh, race, for one thing, uh, racism played in American, uh, w with regard to the Indians, played in American history. Um, and we can't hide from it, and we shouldn't hide from it. And this is just a reminder of the kinds of things that were done to the Indians. And while the Seneca, for example, are, are doing much better largely because of casinos. I mean, they're benefiting from it. If you go to other reservations, it's not the same. Uh, and, and the poverty, the crime, the, the alcohol and drug abuse, the diseases, uh, they're still there. And, you know, what we have had, the, the, the treatment of... Um, Indians in America amounts to a kind of malignant contempt and neglect. We didn't like them. We didn't like them from the beginning. So let's neglect them and hope that they go away. The problem is they didn't. And what do we do with them? Well, we put them into a boarding school and hope for the best. And uh, it didn't turn out that way. When we had you on talking about your um, other book, We Remain, which is more of a a book looking at uh, the, the, the American, bigger the bigger picture. We got into this a little bit, and I think I would like to finish up our conversation about the Thomas Indian School with hopefully getting some thoughts on this. We know this, we're starting to know the stories, and it's worth repeating these stories and making sure that they're out there. At the same time, here we are in 2023. How should, what would you like people to know and understand? about Indians and Indian culture um, that could be, because so much of those, those uh, stereotypes that we grew up with, they, the, the, that still lingers into, into the, the modern conversation to oh, a certain yes. extent. I mean, you know, my daughter is at gradu in graduate school and is teaching that uh, and, and was told, oh, there are no more Indians left. The students told her that, I mean, right. not, not the other faculty members, I hope, yeah. uh, but they, you know, people do not know much about Indians, and and yet they're a central part of American history. As I, I say in in my other book, uh, you know, Native American history is American history. You can't really teach American history if you're a, a faculty member, a professor, or a high school teacher without talking about Indians, and yet more people know very. Most people know very little about them. Uh, what they learn is, of course, from westerns and and that sort of thing. And uh, 
they they know cheap gas and around here and cigarettes on the, on the reservation, or they go to casinos, which are not usually run by Indians, but they're run by white people for the on behalf of the Indians. They don't know very much about them, and so what we need to do is educate them, uh, and that's what this book does, and I think my other book as well uh, tells the story of a really sad story, a very sad story. I um, I was just thinking of uh, a Thanksgiving meal I went to on the Crow Indian Reservation um, uh, several years ago. I can't remember now when it was, but um, at any rate, it was a normal Thanksgiving meal, big family, and you know, I, I was the only white guy there. Okay. <laughs> and they honored me, as a matter of fact, for coming so far to be with them. I've, I've been around there quite a bit. They know me very well. Um, and, you know, it, it was all the same. It looked the same. The turkey and all the fixings and pe- kids running around and, and everybody, a, a big family getting together in a in a in this kind of metal building um, on a reservation, on a crow reservation in Montana. And the question is, and, and I've told people about that, and they said, well, what are they celebrating? Well, they're not celebrating America. They're not part of the American pageant, the American drama. So they're not celebrating that. Uh, there was nobody there with pilgrim hats on, you know, and right. <laughs> like like at the school plays. And, and not things. celebrating so, the Mayflower. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not celebrating the Mayflower or any of that sort of thing. And um, what were they celebrating? Well, this gave them an occasion to get together and celebrate the fact that they were Indians. Um, And they love being Indians. And the people ask me all the time, why don't they just leave? I mean, conditions on Crow are horrible. The last time I was there, I I came back and I told my wife, I don't know if I can go back. I I saw some things that I I won't describe, but it really depressed me and, and, and... I've, like I said, I've shed a lot of tears over these things. But they, for them, being an Indian is something that uh, they, in which they find joy. And they're celebrating it. They just want to be Indians. And like I said, uh, one of my friends, one of my Indian friends said, there's nothing wrong with that. No. And that's what I'd like people to know. They're really generous, giving uh, enjoyable people, um, leave them alone. That's my my message. Yeah, it's it's hard for people to believe. I think white people to understand and feel the kind of things that they feel. And one of the reasons is, of course, that white people haven't been through the kind of trauma that Indians share, and and uh, which is part of their identity. They've they've suffered a great deal. And they survived, and uh, they're proud of it. Dr. Keith Birch, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. What's next? Oh, thank you for having me, and uh, I'll write another book soon. And uh, actually, there is a book that— Oh, uh, is that uh, right? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, don't ask my wife about this because <laughs> she doesn't want me to getting involved again. There's another uh, school on uh, Seneca uh, called uh, Quaker Bridge or Tonasasa. 
Uh, nobody knows about that one either, but uh, I'm thinking of uh, doing a book on that as, as well. Is it down at Allegheny? Allegheny, yeah, right. He was, was on sort of the Allegheny River right by, you know, where the, the reservoir is now. Yes. It was inundated by the reservoir. So, uh, But it ended in, closed in 1936, okay. and I'm, I'm thinking of doing a book on that. So maybe you can have me back on that. And we might have to have you back several times for just a general <laughs> discussion. We most certainly appreciate Well, that. I always appreciate this, and thank you very much. Dr. Keith Birch, his book that we're talking about today, The Thomas Indian School and the quote-unquote irredeemable children of New York. This has been What's Next on WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station.